Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hello, Peter. Are you politically correct? Well, I was going to say we're moving into tricky waters here. Yes, uh, look, I think... Look, I think I'm politically conscious. You know, I think I, there are some areas where, like, for example, I would have said it's like... Um, something in a woodpile, which mm-hmm. I would never say today, but when I was a young kid, you know, that was nothing. That's what you were brought up with. I think uh, there are a lot of things I would have said when I was young and stupid that I don't say nowadays. And so I think I'm politically sensitive. How's that say? Rather than correct. Okay. I hate the correct. Do you say he or she or they when you're referring to people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm still old world in that regard. I, I'm not going to worry. Look, if some... If, Look, it's dangerous. But if someone you know looks like a woman, and talks like a woman, and acts like a woman, there's a very good chance I'll treat him or her as a woman. See, I reckon because I, that's their choice. They decide to look like that. I reckon I've been really good at that. Whenever I talk about you know people in a generic manner yeah. in a sentence, I always say he or she. Yeah, I do that but, too when I'm writing. But, but he or she ain't good enough anymore. Yeah, no, because you you ha- you aren't you're discriminating potentially against the. Yeah, other people. Other people. Yeah. I'm not sure how to define that. And yeah. so I think you're now supposed to say they. But we well, talk. That's why we're going to talk to our next guest. You know, we, we need to know what's what in the world of political correctness. We're talking to Dr. Kevin Donnelly. He's got a new book called Politically Correct Dictionary and Guide. Um, a politically correct dictionary and guide. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see what I don't know about political correctness. So that's coming I, up. I'm guessing there's quite a bit, Peter. I'm sure there is. And I figure I could get in the trouble if it, just about everything I say. I could just keep asking you questions yeah, and I'm sure you'd get into trouble very well, soon. <laughs> let, me, let me offer apologies in advance if I haven't been educated to the right level. Let's hope by the end of this show I will be. We'll also be talking to um, the CEO of Origin Any Energy, Frank Calabria. But they're a company that have had a bit of an interesting time, haven't they? Because they were loved by the market. They, mm. they suffered quite a lot, bit of backlash and then uh, found a bit more support more recently. Yeah. The share price has been improving. Uh, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but they, they kind of got into renewables pretty early, didn't they? Yeah, I think they were one of the first and, and I think they may have paid a little bit of a price because renewable investing has not been that easy. Mm. And uh, despite what um, some of the politically correct people might say, it's not as... You know, it's not necessarily a gold mine, that, and I think hmm. Origin were one of the first to recognise that, and maybe to their cost in the short term. But I do, as you say, Peter, I think that they have sort of hit the bottom and uh, have certainly turned a bit of a corner. Yeah, I, I, I think they're, they're probably – it's like first mover disadvantage. We often mm. say first mover advantage, but when you, you, you go away from the easy um, runs – 
you know, coal. Well, or sometimes first investors do it really tough because yeah. uh, they are they're, they're often the pioneers, and it's often not very profitable that's for, right. for a first. Investor. Others can use their blueprint with their yeah. blueprint. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's um, Frank Calabria. He's coming up on the show, and then we're talking to a very interesting ecologist, a gentleman by the name of Mark McVeigh. And Mark is um, for the British uh, Brisbane City Council, and he's decided to sue his super fund, REST, for not being what he thinks um, good in risk management when it comes to climate change. I don't think I'm going to comment, Peter. <laughs> Paul, it might be politically correct for you to shut up on this particular subject. Well, that's the show. It's an interesting show. Without any further ado, let's go and catch up with Dr. Kevin Donnelly, the author of a new book called... A Politically Correct Dictionary and Guide. Kevin, welcome to the show. My pleasure. And I'm, I've got my colleague, Paul Rickard, here as well, who's, who's not politically correct at all, Kevin. <laughs> Hi, Kevin. Well, I'm, I'm glad there are a few, few of us left who <laughs> right. are politically incorrect. I, okay. <laughs> now, the thing I was intrigued about um, before we get to the, the book itself, your colleagues at the Australian Catholic University... What do they say about your controversial attitude in a world where political correctness permeates just about everywhere we go? Well, luckily I'm at a university where where there is uh, a degree of tolerance and respect for different opinions. So I've been at the ACU now for about six years and uh, never had any trouble in terms of getting in, involved in the public arena mm. and, and putting a view. So uh, in that sense, unlike some of the other universities like Sydney University and Melbourne, where they've been very strong in attacking the Ramsey uh, request, they've knocked back the millions of dollars that was available to set up a Western Civilization uh, Centre because they argue it's Eurocentric and an example of white supremacism and it, it's uh, misogynist and sex, all the rest of it. Mm. But no, I'm pretty lucky to be where I am. And Kevin, just tell us about, you said it's a, a dictionary about political correctness and guides. So what are some of the key takes that come from, uh, come from your book? It, well, the main thing is that a lot of younger people in particular, as we know now, you can lose your job. You can be publicly attacked, uh, certainly on social networking sites like Twitter or uh, Facebook or wherever it, wherever you are. It's very uh, you have to be very careful now with what you say and how you argue. Not only you know in terms of work, but even uh, on the weekend or, or when you're among friends, because political correctness. And when I talk about that, I, I uh, define that in the book as a form of cultural left groupthink, where if you don't agree with the prevailing ideology on issues like gender, sexuality, feminism, multiculturalism, uh, whatever it might be, the environment's another one, sustainability, if you don't agree, you're very quickly attacked and abused. So, for example, if you don't agree with the rate of immigration, mm -hmm. people will say you're racist or xenophobic. If you say, for example, that a woman can be feminine or, or attractive, you're often told that you're sexist. So uh, we have to be careful here. So really, one of the reasons I wrote the book 
it has over 200 words and expressions that you need to be aware of if you're going to be woke, as they call it, and not get into trouble. Mm. So you're saying we all sort of should be aware that these more than 200 words that have certain connotations with some people, and so if we are saying them, we need to be mindful of that and, and know what potentially we, what sort of debate we might inflame. Is that sort of part of the... That's right. I mean, it's a bit of a minefield. And uh, one example I give in the book is Qantas. Uh, the staff there, you know, on the airline, they're now told that they can't say husband and wife or, or mum and dad. Mm. Uh, there was a department in Victoria Community Services and Health, I think it was. They had a they day, what they called they day, where everyone was told they could not use gender-specific pronouns like he and she mm. because that might upset LGBTQI plus people, they had to use they instead. So whether it's a corporation or a government uh, bureaucracy, it really has uh, this political correctness movement is really dominant. It's taken over. So uh, I, I guess there's at least two levels this book's been written. I, I suspect you are decrying the fact that political correctness has gone from being, hey, let's just consider minority groups who maybe in the past there was a um, an excessive amount of discrimination and, in a sense, even teasing of minority groups to a stage where the minorities have so much power. It, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen the the Woody Allen film. Can we say Woody Allen nowadays in the age of political correctness? But there was a Woody Allen film <laughs> called Bananas where he was roped into a, a South American uh, rebel outfit that was planning to take over a dictator in the South American Republic. And th they were the good guys. And as soon as they won and they tossed out the, the dictator... The leader of the rebels came out and, and, and made an announcement to the town, the city that they just captured, and, the, and the, the, the order was, from now on, everyone must wear their underwear on the outside of their clothing, indicating <laughs> that the, when the minority gets in power, they are worse than with the people they replace. Is this the kind of thing that you're, you're alluding to, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I grew up many years ago in Broadmeadows uh, in Melbourne, and as a young kid, I'd be the first to admit we often had a go at one another or used words. Often we didn't know we were being offensive. But there was a time, uh, and I remember it was Bert Newton many years ago on TV. Cassius Clay was yeah. out here, the famous boxer, obviously. And, and Bert Newton in the conversation said, boy. Yeah, I love the boy. Now, I love the boy. Yeah. And in America and, in particular, that was really racist. Absolutely. Mm. So we do, well, I'd be the first to admit we have to be careful. We have to be civil, mm. courteous. We should not unfairly, unfairly discriminate. But I'd argue, as I do in the book, the pendulum has gone too far. So, uh, there are, I mean, the language now, as I said before, if you disagree, you're often accused. I wrote some articles uh, last year for the Australian, the Daily Telegraph, about fundamentalist Islam, and I quoted uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, the woman who now lives in America. 
she argued that uh, there were aspects of the Quran which were quite dangerous. And she argued that Islam really was something we had to be wary of. Now, I argued that in the paper, and I was attacked as Islamophobic. Mm. So rather than addressing the issue, what happens now with political correctness is that they shut down the debate, they close it off by labelling you as, you know, homophobic or transphobic or uh, sexist or Islamophobic. Mm. So the problem now is, and George Orwell, I used to teach 1984 when I was in a school, George Orwell knew about this all those years ago when he wrote 1984, that what totalitarian regimes do, whether it's fascism or communism, is take control of how people think by controlling the language. Mm. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, an, another aspect of the book, and I, I haven't had a chance to, to read it, uh, but Kevin, I, I presume you're also trying to alert people out there who are not mindful of the, the minefields that are out there if you don't know what is unacceptable in the modern setting. True, and uh, I wrote an article for the Australian only last week about political correctness. It had, had over 600 comments online, which really is quite significant. Normally you might get 50 or 80 or 100. Mm. But the fact that there were 600 comments, and when I uh, you know, uh, launched the book in Brisbane last week, Melbourne the week before, I had quite a few emails and uh, people getting in touch because generally now people are starting to think, oh, we're becoming aware of it. We know we have to be careful. But where... Where did it come from, Kevin? How, how, how has it happened? And what can we do to actually address it? And, and that's the main point, I think. People, uh, even the ABC, there was a survey they did about a, two or three weeks ago called Australia Talks. And over 55% of those people surveyed said they were very worried about political correctness and they thought it had gone too far. And so it's an issue there that people are anxious about. And in the book, I explain, as I say, that over 200 words. So you've got a better idea of what you can say and cannot say. But I also explain where it came from, why it's dangerous, and what we should be doing to try and get a bit more balance. Kevin, do you see any sort of analogy with um, your view about political correctness and perhaps the way the the media and a few politicians have, have been so quick to crucify Westpac over the last few days? Or is that something that, uh, um, you know, you, you think that is, is, has, is fully, fully justified? I mean, the criticism of Westpac uh, is justified, and, and so I've got no problem with that. Uh, in the book, I, I mean, I, I suggest in the book that we've always had uh, what when I taught English, we'd call rhetoric. Mm -hmm. um, and that goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. I mean, we've always had the idea that you could argue, you couldn't debate, and you would use different strategies or techniques, like, uh, you know, referring to an expert or, or generalizing or being logical and reasonable. So I've got no problem with having a debate or an argument based on rationality and being reasonable. But as I argue in the book, 
political correctness is different. It's more based on sort of cultural left ideology. It's very left-wing, very neo-Marxist. And you only have to look at what I call a rainbow alliance of different theories about gender, sexuality, post-colonialism, deconstruction. It goes on and on. Mm. And it's sort of cultural left. And in that way, a lot of young people now, when I talk to them, and when you hear them, often they don't have anything to say that's logical or rational. It's all based on emotion. And and that's the other problem here. Uh, somebody famously once said, I think, therefore I am. And as I said at the launch yesterday, a lot of people now, young people in particular, it's I feel, therefore I'm right. It's highly emotional. Mm. Look, um, Kevin, I guess, you know, um, we came out of a university era where lots of, you know, way out and wacky views were tolerated. You know, we had... We had, you know, right-wing um, supporters. We had, I think it was even Nazis on campus when, when we were in, in the 70s, uh, Trotskyists. Um, all the Vietcong supporters. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, and the PLO was on campus. And, and look, are, are campuses less tolerant of minority groups nowadays? Well, I mean, I think I'd have to agree they are less tolerant. I mean, one example would be Jermaine Greer, who, who I don't always agree with. Definitely but not. But she, uh, she argued in England, uh, I think it was late last year, that a man who wants to transgender, transition to become a woman, can never be a man. So she argues that you, you really cannot have a change of, of gender or sexuality. And because of that, she's been no platform. So they won't allow her to go on campus or go on a university grounds mm. now to get into a debate. I mean, there's an Australian woman, Bettina Arndt, who's written a lot about the Me Too movement. She's been, uh, she tried to give a talk at La Trobe University recently, and she was, uh, you know, held down. There were people demonstrating. And in the end, universities were saying to her, well, look, we really can't have you on campus. The other problem now is with universities, they're so politically correct that you have trigger warnings. If if you're having a class where you're talking about uh, a particular play or novel or a period in history where students might be offended or upset, you have to warn them, you know, like we have cigarette warnings on, on, on packets. Yeah. We have safe rooms uh, where kids can, if they're feeling distressed, can go and sit quietly and feel safe. I mean, it's just gone far too far yeah. in terms of uh, identity politics, this idea of everyone's a victim and everyone's open to criticism, uh, supposedly, because we live in a society now which is so oppressive. Yeah, I guess um, the, the French um, thinker, what was his name? Was it Rousseau who said, I will... Um, something like defend wouldn't... your right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you, yes. You can have your. What was that? <laughs> but I'll defend to the death your right to say. I, I don't agree with you, sir. That's right. But I will defend yeah. to the death your right to say it. If it That's wasn't right. him, it was yeah. someone with a V. Where Voltaire. 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 It was either one of those. But either way, yep. I think I'd rather 
idiots being entitled to say something and then being able to yell at them like we used to in the old days at the university. Kevin, thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure. And your book, how can people buy it? Uh, Connor Court is the publisher. So you can go on his webpage, Connor Court Publishing, yeah. or else you can go on my webpage, yeah. one word, kevindonnelly.com.au, and uh, I've got a, a lot on that page, my webpage, uh, in terms of books I've written and various articles and interviews I've given. Okay. Well, what we might do for balance one day is get someone who totally disagrees with you. <laughs> but, but certainly on the Switzer Show, we'll give everybody a go. Thanks very much, Kevin. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Well, it's time for an ad, Paul, and the area that I think I want to advertise today is our upcoming small and micro-cap conference in Sydney at City Tattlesalls Club, December 3, between 9 and 2. Uh, lunch is included as well. And tell us what people are going to see. Yeah, we're going to have um, nine... Um not so much micro cap, I'd say small cap companies, the mm. CEOs yeah. uh, presenting their wares. They'll get 15 minutes each. Just to a show and tell. Show and tell. Uh, you know, companies like um, uh, APN, uh, uh, Domacom, uh, Clean Seas. Uh, Interesting another, companies. Another, quite a few, fint- a couple of fintechs, yeah. all listed ASX companies. 15 minutes to uh, do a show and tell. Then five minutes each for the audience to ask, ask questions. questions, put them on the pressure. Mm. This might, may or may not be the company you want to invest in. Plus, we've got uh, we're going to have Julia Lee and um, and um, Michael Wayne, and mm. we're going to try to find out what they, as a effectively as both fund managers, yeah. uh, look at in small caps, how yeah. they how they value and evaluate companies, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what trends they try to back. So we're going to sort of mix the companies. Mm. There's there's listen to nine CEOs plus get a perspective from a couple of really good great fund managers and yeah. and, and analysts uh, as to how they look at. Yeah, I think it'd be a great companies. experience for, for people who are interested in trying to find those small cap companies that could be real rippers in the future and uh, hearing how experts assess them is going to be a, a very interesting So aspect. to enrol, you go to switzerevents.com.au. Uh, it's next Tuesday, the 3rd of December, 9am in Sydney. Yeah, and we've only got 300 seats and 150 have already gone. So if you, if you are interested, make sure you go to switzerevents.com.au. My next guest is Frank Calabria, and Frank uh, is the CEO of Origin Energy. At a time when energy is a big political and I think social and hip pocket issue, it's going to be interesting to see what Frank sees coming up for his company. Well, Frank, thanks for joining us. No, good to be here, Pete. So, Origin delivered a fairly strong result uh, for year. So, what is the picture for 2020? Yeah, so we've got, uh, for 2020, we're, we've got a few things going on. We've got two strong cash flow generating businesses right now, mm. integrated gas business and energy markets. Uh, this year, we look to actually increase production um, at our APLNG venture. Mm. Uh, we're getting really moving our energy supply that's changing to this rapidly changing world with renewables coming in. Yeah. And the third thing is we're really improving customer experience and uh, responding to the re-regulation of tariffs mm. through uh, cost out. So we're looking to deliver that in our retail business. Okay. So, so Frank, tell us what Origin does nowadays. Yeah, sure. So Origin's uh, really an energy business that operates right across the value chain. Mm. Uh, we produce gas, uh, we export that and sell that within Australia. Uh, we have over 4 million customers for electricity, natural gas, LPG, 
and also solar. Mm. Um, and we actually produce a lot of that energy through renewables, coal, gas-fired generation. So mm. we certainly operate right across the chain. Yeah. And, and over time, will renewables be a much more um, reliable and giving input to the, the whole electrical and energy scene? Well, renewables is rapidly growing. And mm. in fact, last year, there was a significant amount of new renewables coming in mm. uh, to supply energy. Yeah. Uh, solar and wind are the two principal forms that really provide that. Mm. But one of the features associated with those two forms of energy is that they rely on both wind and sun, respectively. Yeah. And as a result, there's also a need for them to be supported by other forms of generation that can respond when they're not available. Yeah. And so the combination of those things will be reliable, but it does require those other forms of generation. That will mm. be fast start gas, pumped hydro, and clearly longer term, there will also be the role that batteries will play. Yeah. But yes, it's that combination that needs to, to be mm. brought together to make it reliable and secure. Yeah, now, that is the hard question, but if anyone can answer it, it would be you. How long do you reckon before batteries become yeah, a valuable contributor. Yeah, they're, they're, they're an early days contributor now. When we look at the cost curve of those batteries, mm. they're coming down. And just like 10 years ago, we saw the solar cost and now we see it today, it's come down dramatically. Um, we see a lot of those cost curves. We really do think it'll be over that sort of next three to five years that okay. you'll see it coming in. Mm. Uh, but really the role batteries play is that they really move energy around and they, are, they really discharge reasonably rapidly. I mean, we're talking hours, not um, days and, and weeks. So they'll be part of the solution, but they won't be the only solution that come alongside those renewables. Okay, now you reinstated dividends. Um, yeah. So what does this mean for shareholders going forward? Yeah, it's a good time for us. I mean, for the last, uh, we've only reinstated them in the last 12 months. Mm. We've been reducing debt over the last several years, and I think we reduced debt by close on three billion for the, over the last three years. Uh, so we uh, introduced dividends this year, 25 cents a share overall, mm. uh, and we've announced a distribution policy, uh, about 30% to 50% of our free cash flow, um, and we look to be able to pay at the high end of that range, so uh, it's a good outlook for dividends for shareholders. Okay. This seems like a tricky question, but what are the risks to your business as government intervention you know, to the industry obviously increases? Yeah, I think, well, in our industry, like many other industries which are subject to regulation, we're working with governments all of the time. Mm, yeah. uh, governments have actually got involved more recently to address particular aspects of the industry, and we work productively with them on this. I think the key thing for us going forward now is that they're underwriting investment, they're directly investing, like in Snowy 2.0, yeah. they're underwriting some of the more generation investment. The key aspect for us is the coordination of that so that it actually comes together for the best outcome for customers. Mm. And for us, the main thing is that we actually therefore get the right supply of energy at the right time that brings affordable, reliable energy mm. to our customers. Mm. It, se it seems like an unbelievably complex job because there's so many moving parts. And of course, you've got political demands and, and customer demands at the same time. Yeah, I think really our focus really starts with the customer because mm. you really must produce good outcomes and customers are looking for affordable energy. Yeah. They want reliable supply over hot summers mm. and at the same time they're looking for a trajectory over time where they would like to see emissions reduce. Mm. It's that combination that creates the complexity with those various technologies coming in. Mm. But I really, with a firm sight on customers, I think that's where it, where it all starts and mm. then it's up for us and governments and other regulators to come together to produce those outcomes. Yeah, okay. So how are you positioning the company, Origin, for 
at the changing energy market? Yeah. Well, you, first we've highlighted that change um, yeah. earlier, uh, yeah. and we're positioning the strategy and the direction of the company to really thrive in that future changing world, and that yeah. probably comes down to um, a few key areas. Firstly, growing the amount of renewable energy we bring into our portfolio. Yeah. We've certainly grown that dramatically over the last several years, and by next by the end of 2020 would have 25 percent of our capacity renewables mm. we have to continue to make sure we run our existing fleet of generation assets for that reliability um, we have to actually get that right and so that's what we're really focused on making sure we manage that transition the second thing is that gas plays an increasing role it plays an increasing role for electricity but also exporting gas to asia is actually displacing coal and improving emissions mm. And we will grow production um, over the course of the time with APLNG um, and continue to deliver outcomes. And we'll be exploring for more gas, including in the Beedaloo and Northern Territory. Mm. And the last thing really is that you'll know every day the way people are interacting with energy and the empowerment of that. Really, the, as that becomes more, whether it's a battery in your home or you've got solar PV and increasingly the digital world is changing that, we're really investing in those technologies to make sure we can change that customer experience. Mm. We see those as the key three sort of themes across the, the future energy world that we're positioning ourselves for. Okay, so talking about the Beetaloo Basin, yeah. so what are you expecting to find? Yeah, well, we're excited to be back because there's been a moratorium and following a scientific inquiry, which we were pleased to see the outcomes have supported us back. And we're mm -hmm. back now drilling two wells, uh, two large horizontal wells. Uh, we've actually what they call spudded, so we've commenced the drilling in October of the first well. Mm. Um, and this is a vast area, just to be clear, it's mm. sort of 18,500 square kilometres. So we're talking about a vast area. So the prospects are, are significant, but there's a wide range of those outcomes yeah. when you would do exploration. Yeah. Uh, so we'll uh, know the first results of the first well by um, the last quarter of this financial year 20. Mm. Um, it's early days because uh, of those wide range of outcomes. So uh, in terms of talking production, uh, but the reason why it's received some attention is really the vast nature of it and, and, and we're producing what they call liquids-rich wells, which go to uh, really the economics of actually producing gas at a cheaper price because you get the benefit of those. And the prospect of that is that we're bringing cheaper gas into the, into the domestic market. Yeah. Do we know how much gas is there or is it purely speculation that there could be fantastic surprises yeah. You know, yeah. decade after decade. We don't know exactly because this is always the subsurface science. Mm. Um, we did drill a well prior to the moratorium that showed even in one small area there was, um, we reported to regulators at that time, we saw over six TCF of gas, which is a significant amount of gas. Mm. Um, so the prospects are very um, large for this. Uh, but no one exactly knows, which is why you do this drilling. Mm. And the key aspect for this is also it has the prospect of liquids. By that I mean um, uh, petroleum liquids that would come out of the wells as well. So mm. that's, um, that's one of the great opportunities with this. Mm. It's really exciting. Yeah, it is exciting yeah. and we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Peter. That's Frank Calabria from Origin Energy. Okay, Paul, um, have you done any Christmas shopping yet? No, I haven't, Peter, and that leads me to a very obvious question. Yeah. What would be your number one Christmas gift? Well, yeah, see, some gifts are actually great when you open them up. Mm -hmm. They look good. Yeah, they might make you feel good for a while, but I prefer a gift that keeps on giving. Okay, what's a gift that keeps on giving? Well, I think if you were prepared to invest, is it $24.95? Just round it off at 25 bucks. You could buy a copy of Join the Rich Club by Peter Switzer. 
And that's a gift that will keep on giving. Fantastic idea for uh, kids, grandchildren. Mm. Maybe even if, you, if, 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 if you're still at that point where you need to invest and uh, become a millionaire or not become a millionaire. but Just uh, improve your just, wealth. Just improve your wealth, as you say. You know, um, what is it? I've been rich, I've been poor. Rich, rich is, is better. better. <laughs> rich is better. There aren't too many people <laughs> who argue with me on that point. Uh, but uh, anyhow, $24.95 and you get that from Switzer Store, all one word, switzerstore.com.au. That's right. And I believe Dimmix will also be stocking it very soon as well. So if you miss me, you can always go to Dimmix. So, Paul, let's go to our next guest. It's a gentleman by the name of Mark McVeigh. And this guy, he's an ecologist from the Brisbane City Council and he's decided to sue his super fund, REST. Do you know why? No, I don't know why. (laughs) Well, he reckons that the, the fund is not doing their risk assessment properly and they're ignoring the future implications of climate change and what it could do to his... Um, super fund in the future. Big call, isn't it, for it is an ecologist? Call. I might have to keep a little quiet on this one, Peter. <laughs> You've kept quiet on a number of things today. Anyway, I just think it's very interesting and I just want to know what uh, has got Mark hopping enough to go and take a big super fund to court. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, glad to be here. All right, now let's just put into context this very unusual story. You're an ecologist who works for the Brisbane City Council and you're a member of the REST Superfund, and you're suing your Superfund. So tell us why you're doing that. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's a bit of a story. It starts uh, back in 2017, um, so quite a while ago now. But um, basically, I wanted to find out what exactly my superannuation was doing in regards to climate change risk. Um, and after, you know, sending some emails back and forth with them, they, they weren't very forthcoming with the information I was after. Um, and eventually it led to, uh, me, yeah, finding a lawyer and, and going down this track, uh, where basically looking into why they couldn't give me that information and trying to find out exactly why or if they're taking climate change risk into account adequately with their investment decisions. And what evidence do you have, Mark, that they're not taking climate change risk into account? Um, yeah, well, that's kind of what the case is all about, is trying to get that evidence, right? Like, you know, trying to actually get something from them to say that they are taking that information into account. Um, as a, just a standard member, um, back in 2017, I didn't have access to that information um, and I couldn't make an adequate decision because I didn't have that information available to me. Yeah. Uh, what kind of um, support have you received, you know, given the fact this is a very unusual thing because you know, you're suing a super fund for not adopting uh, a social stance that you believe in? And I, I guess it would be fair to say at least 50% of the population agrees with you in being concerned about climate change, but whether they want their super fund to invest accordingly, what kind of support have you received? Yeah, well, um, and I've received a lot of support, and not just in Australia, but globally as well. Um, but I would say it's it's not a social um, belief that's stemming this case. It's it's a financial one. It's about risk, um, and it's about the risk that climate change poses to investment. So um, I, I don't think yeah, you, it's it's a lot more than just you know a, a social decision. I mean, there's social, um, environmentally friendly. 
uh, superannuation funds out there that, you know, restrict investment um, for coal and such like that and smoking and, and all kinds of stuff. But this is basically about financial risk. But when, when you say financial risk, Mark, I, I gather you're probably talking about long-term risk, but it, are you alleging that between the time you you put your super monies with rest and today that you've actually lost money as a result of something they've done? Or are we just talking about there's a potential for loss down the track? Yeah, so there's a potential loss. I mean, my money um, potentially is going to be there until 2055 when I, um, you know, under current laws can potentially retire. Um, and there needs to be a, a risk analysis during the decisions for investment over that time to ensure that my money isn't being compromised by the risk that the climate change transition and the physical risk actually impose. So, so given the fact you've ob- obviously gone down a road that uh, until now I'd say no one's gone down, what has been the reaction from REST? H- have they come back to you and tried to say, well, uh, you know, we recognise that there's a reason to be concerned, but in the short to medium term, we don't think there is going to be a substantial loss. So go back to your ecology. No. So their their main statements have been that they consider climate change risk as a regular part of their investment decisions um, and, and basically um, ESG decisions. Yep. So they, they accept that climate change is a factor in investment decisions, um, but to the scope of it and to the actual decision-making process, um, that's where there's a disagreement. Um, but yeah, it's basically you know it's still in the courts, and there's still a lot of um, discussion going on. Okay, and so what is the actual case then you're taking against the super fund? Failure to worry about your future investments, or failure to give you the information, or all of the above, and something else. Yeah, so there's there's kind of two parts to it. The first is that um, failure to give information. And um, it basically all comes down to fiduciary duties, um, which is why this is such a landmark case. It's because fiduciary duties has never been tested like this before. Mm, Um, And so, yeah, the case really comes down to two parts. That first part is um, information being available to a member and also the um, basically taking reasonable risks into account with investments in climate change, as far as I, I believe is definitely a reasonable risk that they need to be taking into account. So. So, Mark, why, no, there's no law that says that you have to have your money with rest, so why don't you just take your money out and move it on? Yeah, so basically back in 2017 when I started this, there wasn't really any options out there. I mean, there were some sustainable investments, supers go around, but, you know, they block investments for smoking and all kinds of different things that I'm not that interested in. Um, and so it's an issue in, basically through the entire industry. And like most Australians, you know, we put our superannuation in one fund and we kind of stick with it for the rest of our lives. And I, I really wanted to just get some information out of rest. And when they didn't give it to me, it kind of just escalated from there. Okay, so it's always a bit of a punt when you go to the courts. Are you being funded by other people who think, yeah, this is a really you know, good idea and, and we'll get behind it? Because, you know, if you, if you go to court and you lose, it could hit, hit your, your hip pocket. That could hurt your future income. Yeah, so I'm really lucky that, yeah, like I said before, I've had so much support around Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, we managed to crowdsource the funding for the case um, and getting some 
pro bono work, work from some barristers. So it's um, it's been really good as far as that's concerned. Yeah, and, and so what is your perfect outcome? So given the fact you've gone to court, you've you've brought the superannuation fund yeah, to court, what do you think is going to be a satisfactory outcome for you? I mean, for me, it's, it's making a change within REST and within the, the way that they uh, make their decisions and, and where that decision comes from. Um, but as well as that, well, you know, making this case um, win in my favour, uh, basically going to set a precedent throughout the entire superannuation industry throughout Australia as well. Um, and a lot of countries are also looking at this case um, overseas, so you know it's going to shake up the entire entire superannuation and pension and that kind of outlook we have on fiduciary duties. So, um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just looking at rest, but there's there's outside implica- implications as well. Yeah. Mark, has anyone said to you that while you're trying to improve your future returns by taking into account potential threats from climate change? In the short term, you might actually lose money because you get out of profitable investments that could do really well for, say, five or ten years before we stop using coal. I mean, that's. I mean, it's not really applicable. I mean, if you're doing the risk analysis and you sit there and you, you've got the information you need about climate change and the impacts it's going to have, then, then you've done the work. You can invest in whatever is profitable and mm. still has that risk into account. So I don't think it has to be one or the other. Um, you just need to make sure that you're making those decisions based on the best available evidence and you're doing your um, fiduciary duty. Because mm. It's interesting. I heard Mark Cannon Brooks talk the other day and he said, coal will be dead in 20 years. And even though I think Mike's a really smart guy, I don't know where he got that information from. It can't be easily proved. But if it does take 20 years, there may well be five years where investing in coal is actually financially beneficial. So it's a really interesting can of worms you've opened up. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of that kind of, you know, reporting going on. I know there's an article I glimpsed at today saying that coal's price is going to drop crazily next year. But, you know, that stuff like that comes out all the time. Yeah. Um, but, it, yeah, it comes down to just having that process in place so that we're really considering this um, from a factual standpoint and we don't have decisions made purely or ideology or anything like that. Okay, so it's going to be an interesting court case. Uh, I don't know whether I, I want to wish you best of luck or not, but I've, I'm going to be very intrigued to see how it works out, mate. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Nah, that's all right. Thank you. That's Mark McVeigh, a man who's suing Rest Super. I hope for the members rest, Peter, that he gets thumped in the court. So that's why I kept quiet. I I have no problem with uh, super fund trustees looking out for fiduciary duty, and perhaps there's a bit there's something good coming out of this, and uh, that's not such a bad thing. But I don't like the idea. If he doesn't like the money, move it out of there, right? Move on. Why should other members have to pay to defend a case like this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And look, Paul. In, the, in this democracy called Australia, you're entitled to your point of view as well. <laughs> and before we go, Paul, we have a question of the week here, and it's um, by someone called Greg from Penrith, and he says, my daughter and son-in-law have had their first investment property in the suburb of Melbourne for about 18 months as a retiree, and I come lately student of financial investment management. Their loan arrangement is one I've never heard about. Following many hours listening to you, Paul, Mr. Tarby, 
Mislow mass about property market, so he hasn't heard this thing before. Their ANZ investment loan, arranged through a financial services firm in Victoria, is an interest-only loan f- set for a, a, a period which is designed to allow them to use the reduced repayments to pay off their owner-occupier loan more quickly. What I was surprised to hear was that each time an interest-only period is reached, the loan will be refinanced with another interest-only period. It seems that this would have the effect that the principal would never be repaid until the property is sold. Have you heard this arrangement slash option before? As a novice, it seems a risky strategy. What do you reckon? Well, actually, it's a very common strategy, probably not as common today as it was, but the idea, of Peter, is that, uh, you know, that, interest on a investment property is tax deductible and so you really want to maximize in the sense the interest you're paying off on your investment property mm-hmm. and get rid of your non-deductible um, home loan that for your owner occupier property mm-hmm. and i think that's exactly what uh, the son and the daughter-in-law and son are doing mm-hmm. they're they're paying off as fast as they can their normal home loan mm-hmm. and they're keeping the they're not paying off their investment property because it's interest only and they're getting a tax deduction. So from an accounting point of view and from a tax point of view, it's a pretty good strategy. Mm. Now, this is uh, something that uh, we've talked about in this program, uh, I would have thought sometime in the past, was easier. But uh, about 24 months ago, maybe 18 months ago, APRA got very worried about the blowout uh, in interest-only loans, yep. and they actually put a, made all the banks tighten up and ration and put a, a cap on the actual number of interest-only loans that each bank could have. Mm. And so loans like this are a lot harder to get. In fact, a lot of banks now won't do it where you don't make any principal repayments. So mm. I'd almost say to, I think it was Greg, that mm. uh, I'm somewhat surprised that they're able to get daughter and son are able to continue this arrangement. Yeah, and I think, Greg, the only thing I would worry about this, and I've got to say, I've done interest-only loans myself for, for my properties in the past. The only problem would be if the property is a crappy property and it doesn't get capital yeah, gain. Yeah. So if you're getting capital gain and you're just and your principal stays the same and you're paying off the interest and you bought it at say five hundred thousand, it grows to a million. Well, it's a fantastic little, little strategy. But certainly, you know, it's a good question you ask. But I wouldn't be worried, provided the property has a potential for capital and, gain. And the other thing I'd add, Peter, is you don't want the rent to go backwards here. So if the if the rent was going down, then this would be could be a very expensive strategy yeah. because effectively you're, you're, the, the gap is increasing. But mm. most properties, rent will be stable to going up. And so y- y- your income is actually, you know, increasing at the same time as your expenses are actually keeping mm. flat. So yeah. and, you are, and you are paying off your home loan on your principal property at a faster rate and, and that's capital gains tax-free. That's right. So it, it, it's, it's a good strategy. It's harder to do today than it was. And so maybe... Um, when this was put in place, mm. APRA hadn't done the crackdown and the banks were perhaps making this a little mm. bit too easy. And, and I guess the, the, the bite might be if ever ANZ says you can't have an interest-only loan and then you've got much bigger That's repayments. right. There's probably no contractual requirement that they have to roll it over. So yeah. you do take a risk yeah. and they might suddenly say, sorry, we're not going to do the loan on that basis. Mm. And, and they wouldn't really be sorry. They'd, they would just say sorry, wouldn't they? Well, you're bashing <laughs> banks again. I don't know. Oh, I mean, we, didn't okay. even, we haven't even I'll talked put, about Westpac I'll, today. I'll put kid is, gloves uh, on. I'll put kid gloves on. And I, I've let you get away from this program not talking about Westpac. Yeah. Um, so Let's talk about Westpac next week. That's <laughs> the old sh- news by then. <laughs> That's our show for the, this week. Thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>